However, this morning we are in the book of Luke. So let us, let us go to Luke. You, Luke, and me, Luke. Now, if you're new to the Bible and you have no idea that there was a book called Luke in the Bible, we are going to put all of the verses we're going to look at up on the screens because we look at a whole bunch. We are literally meandering our way through this book. And I just want to remind you of where we've been. Uh, The disciples in Luke chapter 9, the disciples have had a good chapter. All right, sometimes they screwed up, but this chapter so far so good. In the beginning of Luke chapter 9, Jesus sends them out, if you remember. He selects 12 of them. He has a large group of disciples. He selects 12 of them, and he sends them out. And lo and behold, they do Jesus kind of stuff. They're preaching, they're healing, they're, they're casting out demons. I mean, it's a huge, huge deal. They come back and celebrate with Jesus. They see Jesus then feed 5,000 people, which is not 5,000 people, 5,000 men, which would equate to 20,000 or more people. And, and then three of them, James, John, and Peter, get selected by Jesus to go up on the top of a mountain where Jesus is praying. Jesus, if you remember, meets with Moses and Elijah. He's transfigured and part of his glory starts you know, being displayed. It's a huge, huge deal. And even in the midst of all of this, Peter actually begins to understand that Jesus is Messiah, if you remember that huge declaration in the middle of chapter 9. So they, they're having a good chapter until this point, all right? Verse 44 of Luke chapter 9. Notice, we're going to look at three episodes that are strung together by Luke that are very much related. Verse 44, Jesus said, listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you, disciples, The Son of Man, now that is a messianic reference from Daniel chapter 7. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. And that is a reference, this is the second time Jesus has said, the Messiah is going to suffer and die at the hands of human beings. But notice, they did not understand, the disciples did not understand what this meant. It was hidden from them so that they did not grasp it. And they were afraid to ask Jesus about it. Verse 46, An argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. All right, now, I love this. So these are 12 guys. 11 of them are are peasants from like the, the farming region of the Galilee. And they're just starting to do cool stuff. And instantly an argument breaks out about which one is the coolest. And, and I love, I love that we don't do anything like that today. But think about how, how crazy this was. Why, why now would they begin to argue about who's the greatest? Flip back to chapter 9, verse 28. All right, so first episode, they argue about who's the greatest. Why do they argue about that? Well, I'm guessing here, but notice verse 28. About eight days later, Jesus took Peter... John and James with him and went up to a mountain to pray. Now, how many disciples are in the 12? (laughs) Not a true question. How do you spell FBI, right? Um, Jesus has this large group of disciples. Out of that, he selects 12. This is the first time out of the 12, he selected three. And those three went up on the mountain to pray. Now, the text doesn't say this, but I don't think it's far from our imaginations to believe that while they were up there, the nine were down not on the mountain, wondering, 
well, what's so great about them, right? And when they come down, and clearly they've had some sort of big experience, I can imagine, I mean, just hypothetically, there's a bit of jealousy, a bit of rivalry, a bit of tension, and so they begin to argue, which one of us is the greatest? And, and what's so, what is so awesome is, is that that's no longer a part of the American Capital C Church, right? I mean, we would never in a million years rank the 50 greatest churches or the 50 fastest growing churches or the most influential preachers or worship songs, right? We'd never do anything like that, right? Because Jesus was so clear about how idiotic that kind of ranking turns out to be, correct? Right? Or not? And just like them, we wonder, well, who's the greatest? Notice Jesus responds. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and had the child stand beside him. He said, whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For it is the one who is least among you who is the greatest. Now, we, as Americans, we love children. And, and childlike faith is something that's positive. In the first century, childlike faith was something that was negative. Children were only useful once they started contributing around the family farm, okay? They were a drain on resources. Half of them would die before they, they hit 18. I mean, children were not models you know, like, we're, we're all precious moments, kind of hallmark sorts of folks when it comes to how we view kids. Back then, yes, they loved their kids, but kids were just looked at differently. So it's a bit odd that when Jesus, hearing and knowing what the disciples are arguing about, he takes a child. See, to us, it's like, oh, yes, look at the cute little child. No, to them, this would have been the opposite of everything they thought spiritual maturity was. Someone who didn't know the law, someone who didn't follow the law, someone who wasn't even old enough to go to synagogue, he holds them up and he says, this is what greatness looks like. Sheer, unadulterated humility, dependence, trust. There you go, that's greatness. Now we'll all agree with that as good church people, but we still can't help but rank, compare, and contrast. When pastors get together, that's what we do. And churches, well, which church are you part of? Well, Rick Warren's church or... You know what? I mean, you just like, really? It's Rick Warren's church? I had no idea. I thought it was the church of Jesus. Last time I checked. And it's not a knock on Rick. It's a knock on the way we see this. We're still arguing about who's the greatest. So they've had a good chapter, these disciples, until they come across this argument. But then notice they do something else that's really dumb. I love it because it gives me hope that I belong to. Verse 49. This is the second dumb episode. Master, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and what? And we tried to stop him. Now, let me ask you a philosophical question. Less demons is better than more demons. Would you agree? (laughs) So they see someone casting out demons in the name of Jesus, and they try to stop him. Now, why would they try to stop him? Go back to Luke chapter 9. This is all one story. And go to verse 37. The next day, when they came down from the mountain. Okay, so this is when Peter, John, and James are up on the top of the mountain. They come down with Jesus. A large crowd met Jesus. A man in the crowd called out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son. He is my only child. A spirit, like a demonic spirit, seizes him. And he suddenly screams, 
It throws him into convulsions so that he foams at the mouth. It scarcely ever leaves him and is destroying him. And then notice verse 40. I begged your disciples to drive it out, but what? But they could not. So, a couple of days later, they meet a man who was actually casting out demons, and they tried to stop him. Is that any coincidence? So, three of them get chosen to go up on a mountain, and they argue about who's the greatest. They were unsuccessful in casting out demons, and they come across somebody who wasn't one of them who could. And so what do they do? They tried to stop him. And notice the reason they give. Verse 49, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him. Why? Why? Because he's not one of us. Right? I mean, you've got like the, the crowds, the riffraff, and then you've got the 12, baby. And he wasn't one of the 12. So the 12 couldn't cast out a demon, but someone outside of them could. So let's try to stop him. Now, I find that so absolutely interesting because we would all agree casting out demons is a good thing. Now, if you've got your Old Testament ears on, which is another way of me saying, if you're Jewish, you would have recognized something similar happens in the Old Testament. So keep your finger in Luke and go to the book of Numbers. And I want to show you a very similar account. Go to Numbers. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, chapter 11. Now, we're going to meet a man named Moses. And there, the way Israel had set up its camp, you have like all of the Israelites over here, and then away from the camp, you had something called the Tent of Meeting. Creatively titled, it was the place where you met with God. All right? So Moses would go and inquire of the Lord outside of the camp, away from, this, uh, away from this camp. He would inquire of the Lord over here in this tent. And thus, it's the setup for this verse, verse 24, Numbers chapter 11. So Moses went out and told the people what the Lord had said. He brought together 70 of their elders, these are leaders of Israel, and had them stand around the tent of meeting. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke with Moses, and he took some of the power of the Spirit that was on him and put it on the seventy elders. When the Spirit rested on them, they prophesied, but did not do so again. So stop for a second. The idea is that Moses was normally the one that met with God in the tent of meeting. He brings along seventy others, and as Moses and God are meeting, the same Spirit, the Spirit of God that was resting on Moses, now rests on the 70, and they all begin to prophesy. That's declaring truth, declaring future truth, declaring past truth, whatever it is. They all begin to prophesy as evidence of the fact that what Moses is experiencing, they are experiencing too. Are you with me so far? Hmm. That, i, I got to learn not to ask, because it's never confidence building. However, verse 26, two men whose names were Eldad and Medad had remained where? So they weren't at the tent. They were listed among the elders, but did not go out to the tent. Yet the Spirit also rested on them, and they prophesied in the camp. 
So you've got Moses and 70 over here. And then lo and behold, the two guys that were supposed to go over there but didn't, in the middle of all of Israel, they're experiencing it too. Notice, a young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. Joshua, the famous Joshua, son of Nun, who had been Moses' aide since youth, spoke up and said, Moses, my Lord, stop them. Then, do you see the scenario? All right, I really do need feedback, particularly from like the back. (laughs) Moses and the 70 are at the tent. Eldad and Medad, who will go down in infamy, as Eldad and Medad are in the camp. And what is happening at the tent gets spilled over into the camp for these two guys. Somebody runs and tells on them, hey, these guys are prophesying. And so Joshua, who was in a position of like being groomed, says, let's stop them. Do you see the parallels with what we just read in Luke? Oh, yes. That's what I'm talking about. But Moses replied, are you jealous for my sake? I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on them. Then Moses and the elders had returned to the camp. So, if you're hearing the Jesus story about trying to stop the guy casting out demons, you would, if you were Jewish, you would have thought back to the fact that here we go, this crew of 70, they were the authorized one, but these two in the camp, they were experiencing the same thing. And so, what does Joshua do? Let's stop it. What did the disciples do? Let's stop it. Why? Because they're not one of us. They're not in the right box. They're not the official authorized representatives, right? They're not, they don't wear the right uniform. And so Moses says, why are you jealous? I wish everybody could experience this. And Jesus, notice Jesus' response back to Luke. Jesus' response, (laughs) I wish I could have heard this or seen the look in his face when he said this. Verse 50 of Luke 9. Do not stop him from casting out demons. Whoever's not against you is with you. The disciples say, hey, let's stop him because he's not one of us. Jesus responds, us is bigger than you thought. Right? And if you're Jewish, yeah, that's just like what happened with Moses. Is it possible in the name of God for the people of God to oppose the work of God? Absolutely. Happened back then. Happened with the disciples. Happens today. I mean, when Jesus says, hey, if you want to know what the Holy Spirit's like, the Holy Spirit's like the wind. Try boxing that in. Right? The disciples and Joshua, they're worried about control and authorization. Jesus and Moses, they're just interested in blessing the movement of God wherever they find it. Even if it's not one of us. Even if it's in the camp. So, three guys get called up to the mountain. Come back down. They argue about who's the greatest. They come across a child they can't cast a demon out of and they hear about someone else who can cast demons out successfully. So we tried to stop him. Third episode. Verse 51, as the time approached for Jesus to be taken up to heaven, 
Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. He sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready. Now, let's talk Samaritans for a second. We're actually going to look at a good Samaritan here in a couple of weeks. But Samaritans were not particularly liked. Brief history of Israel. Are you ready? Okay, Abraham gets formed into a nation. The nation goes into exile, comes back into the promised land. They want a king. They get a king. The Saul first, then David, then Solomon. Because of Solomon's sin, two of Solomon's sons create civil war. There's a northern kingdom, Israel now, and a separate southern kingdom called Judah. Right? They live in such apostasy, the northern kingdom gets exiled into the nations, never to return. Gentiles come in and they, they, they take over that land and they start intermarrying with some of the Jews who'd been left behind. Thus are born the Samaritans. The southern kingdom, 100 or so years later, gets exiled and some of them come back. They are worried about being exiled again and because of that, they hate the Samaritans because they're half-breeds. Okay? There is such animosity. We'll look at this between these two groups. So when Jesus sets his face to Jerusalem, you would have thought he would have taken the long way around. Instead, he sends messengers to a Samaritan village, saying to them, prepare for me. Now that could be lodging, or that could be a place to preach. But notice the Samaritans don't want to have anything to do with him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. The Samaritans actually worshipped in a different mountain. They believed Jerusalem worship was false. So they opposed Jesus. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? All right. Now, this has an Old Testament antecedent as well. Keep your finger in Luke. Go to 2 Kings. This is all one story. Go to 2 Kings chapter 1. Now there are lots of parallels in the life of Jesus and in the prophet Elijah. So here's an Elijah story that takes place in that same region. Okay, In the same region, this story takes place. Don't lose that. Now there's a wicked king who is rebelling against God. And uh, the prophet Elijah is being summoned to give an account of his judgments. So verse 9, 2 Kings chapter 1. The king sent to Elijah a captain with his his company of 50 men. The captain went up to Elijah who was sitting on the top of a hill and said to him, Man of God, the king says, come down. Elijah answered the captain, If I am a man of God, may fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty men. Then fire fell from heaven and consumed the captain and his men. At this, the king sent to Elijah another captain with another fifty. The captain said, Man of God, this is what the king says, come down. If I'm a man of God, Elijah replied, my fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty men. Then the fire of God fell from heaven and consumed him and his 50 men. So the king sent a third captain. And can you imagine being that guy? (laughs) The third captain went up, fell on his knees. Man of God, he begged, please respect my life. And the story goes on. So, when the disciples, years later, 
are walking through the same region and they come across obstinate resistance to Jesus. What do they do? Hey, remember that story about calling the man of God calling down fire? Let's do that. Now, notice, notice, it's not just that they see Jesus as Elijah, the man of God, but notice they offer to call down fire themselves. Who do they think they are? They're the Elijahs of the story. Do you see what's happened? They've gotten a taste of spiritual authority and power. And they argue about who's the greatest. They try to keep it exclusive. And they want to punish their enemies with it. I'm so glad none of that happens in disciples' generations later, correct? I mean, isn't it interesting? These same issues creep up. Notice Jesus, back in Luke. (laughs) Do you want us to call down fire from heaven? And again, if you're Jewish, you know exactly what they're referring to. That happened in that region generations before. But Jesus turned and rebuked them. I would have wished, I wish Luke would have told us what Jesus said exactly. It could have been something like, hey, remember the whole suffering for the world thing? That's my motive. We're not calling down fire on people. I'm actually going to suffer and die for the very people that you want to call down fire on. Maybe. But notice what's happened. They've gotten a taste of spiritual authority and power. They argue about who's the greatest. They try to stop somebody from doing Jesus' work. And then they want to call down fire on their enemies. Now, I think you could spend weeks exploring each of those themes because the same temptations exist, of course, for us today. But they're all based, and Jesus answers them all in a very unique way. They're all based in a misunderstanding, a too small understanding of what Jesus turns out to be about. Would you agree? Right? You're not the greatest like a kid is. Us is bigger than you think, and your enemies, you're to serve them, not punish them. So... I was thinking about how best to illustrate this. So I grabbed one of Seth's uh, little bowls. Let this bowl stand for my view of Jesus. All right? When I first heard about Jesus, I was 9, 10, 11. Some pastor said, listen, hell is real and you're going there unless you pray a prayer. Okay? Accept Jesus in your heart, he'll forgive you. Done. Uh, For everything? Yes. Everything you've done, will do, have done, forever. All right. I pray a prayer. Jesus is the forgiver of my sin. Hallelujah. I get to do whatever I want, knowing it will be forgiven. How great a deal is that? And all I have to do is pray a prayer and go, go endure church for an hour a week. Right? But the longer I walked with Jesus... All right, I realized, all right, so he, he was more than just like, like the, the, the forgiver, right? He also rose from the dead. So my view got a little bigger. He rose from the dead, and that means um, 
I, I not just the, the promise is that he's defeated death and he's defeated the curse and we can have life eternal with him. And, and it's not just resurrected life after you die, but there's something going on here and now that opens up too. So, okay, fantastic. He gets bigger. But then I realized, oh, it's not just that he died and then he rose from again. The, the scriptures teach he ascended to heaven. And that means he is right now reigning and ruling as the king of the universe. And he is bringing about God's will on earth as it is in heaven. And he will return someday. The movement of Jesus is much bigger than just what happens when you die. It's also with what happens with you live. And so you realize, oh, okay. So the thing's getting a little bigger. But then you realize he's not just dying and, and, and rising from the dead and sitting up in heaven. What he's done is he sent out the Holy Spirit, right? And so you realize that what Jesus has done is he's poured out his spirit on his church. And that means there's a giftedness, there's a deliverance, there's a victory, there's a freedom, there's stuff that's true now, not just true once you die. There is a movement afoot. He's always at work. He's gifting, he's calling, he's wooing every human person on the planet. And he's enlisting participants who are simply willing to follow him wherever he will take them to go. You realize, oh my goodness, this, this is getting bigger, but then, but then you realize, oh, it's not just that he died, and it's not just that he rose from the dead, and, and it's, not just, it's not just that he ascended and sent his Holy Spirit, right? You realize that, that what has happened is that Jesus of Nazareth is in the process of redeeming all creation, making all things new, that there will come a point in human history where there is a new heavens and a new earth and people who will live with God forever with resurrected bodies doing human things in a new earth with a new heaven and holy cow. That's what eternity looks like. And it begins now, the minute you say yes to this Jesus. All of a sudden, you realize, oh, I'm not the center of the thing. I've actually been swallowed up into something much bigger, right? Paul puts it this way in Colossians. For your life has disappeared with Christ in God. So when you have this view of Jesus, it's easy to think you're the greatest, correct? Jesus needs me. He's lucky to have me. I have my choice of many gods, and I choose to give him allegiance. I could do anything with a Sunday morning. I choose to go to church. I could do anything with 20 bucks. I choose to give it to him, right? There's a sense in which there's an entitlement relationship. That Jesus is added to me. I'm not added to him. And so I, I walk around and he's following me. Hey, Jesus, can we bless this? And we're doing this and bless this and bless this. And he's my forgiver, yes, and hallelujah. But when he's this size, it's really, really easy to think you're the greatest and that you're necessary. When you're here, you look around and you go, my goodness, I think he's fine without me. I, I think I'm actually the one who's privileged. He's not lucky to have me. I'm privileged that he would allow me to serve. All of a sudden, instead of bargaining with God, now it's whatever you give, I'll receive. Instead of trying to control, faith turns out to be full of risk and joy and wonderment. When Jesus is this size, how big is Team Jesus? That size, right? Team Jesus is made up of all the people who are exactly like me, sign the same creed, sing the same songs, talk about spirituality the same ways. This is Team Jesus. But when Jesus is this big, boy, the team gets a lot bigger, doesn't it? And you realize, wow, the charismatic and Presbyterian and Baptist and Methodist and Anabaptist and brothers and sisters, all those labels really, they're not as important. 
And, and are there boundaries when Jesus gets huge? Yes, there are boundaries. But they're not as many as we think. We, like the disciples before us, are colossally short-sighted and trying to stop the movement of God because it doesn't look like us. There are things that we fight for. There are things that we die for. There are boundaries, of course. But boy, that's a short list. See, when Jesus is this big, Team Jesus, man, he can be doing anything anywhere. It can be in the camp or it can be at the tent. It can be one of us or not one of us. As Paul will say, I don't care if people are preaching Jesus from false motives as long as Jesus is preached. When Jesus is this size, it's easy to think you're the greatest. When Jesus is this size, it's easy to think Team Jesus is this size too. And when Jesus is this size, what do you do with your enemies? Well, you punish them. You try to win There's a cultural war to be won. So maybe we don't call down fire, but we cut on other things. But when you're immersed in this, and Jesus has swallowed you up, oh, you realize, oh, okay, if you're going to follow a crucified Messiah, you don't call down judgment. What you do is you love, serve, and be willing to die for your enemies. Wow, it's an entirely different thing. So brothers and sisters, I just thought... Instead of skipping over these short three little episodes, I thought, wow, there is so much stuff here that I wrestle through. Because the American church, capital C, still ranks. We still compete. We still see the battle as against flesh and blood, not against powers and principalities. We have so far to go. See, with Jesus, Jesus starts out as a carpenter. In the book of John, written by a guy named John, who has a subtle reference to himself as the disciple who Jesus loved. First, one of the first interactions with Jesus is somebody looks at Jesus and says, can anything good come of Nazareth? And by the end of the Bible, 60 years later, that same John, who called himself the disciple who Jesus loved, that same John sees the risen Jesus in all of his glory on an island when he's in exile, and he falls down, face down, as though dead. I'm all for Jesus being our friend, our companion. I'm all for Jesus being our buddy. Love it. But there there is a time, and there has to be a place, when Jesus gets so big and so glorious and so beautiful that we just shut up and we don't say anything. And we're not flippant. We're not trite. And we just say, like the wind, we will bless the move of God wherever we find it. Far be it from us to determine ahead of time how he will or will not work. Are we the kinds of people who expect him to do new things? The endlessly creative God who created hundreds of species of frogs, probably thousands. That same God wants every person to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus. Are we prepared to limit how he'll do that? Are there boundaries? Of course there are boundaries. Paul defines them. Jesus defines them. But I just wonder sometimes, in our quest to be the greatest, the rightest, the truest, the most faithful, if we aren't working against the very thing we think we're blessing. And so close your eyes, if you would, for a moment. 
Just close your eyes for a moment. If, if you've never given your heart to this Jesus, we believe all that we've said here is true. He is forgiver. He is Savior. He is resurrected Lord of heaven and earth. He will come again to renew all things. And that you can have a part in His movement right now. You can be made new right now. And so we always have a team that meets over in the corner of our room. It's called the Believe Team for folks that have questions or want prayer or would want to know more about what it means to follow Him. If you're someone who's already given your life to Jesus, several questions for me, for us. Number one, although all of us would agree greatness is found in service, in what ways do we still rank and compare? In what ways are we still trying to pay God back for His gift of grace? Are we like the disciples, people that are obsessed with the boundaries? Or are we like Jesus and Moses, folks that are willing to bless the move of God wherever we see it? And are we like the disciples, folks that would love to call down judgment upon our enemies? Or are we, like Jesus, folks that will be willing to die for them? If you're like me, room to grow on all three fronts. And so, Father, we call out to you in this moment that you would confront us, but not just leave us confronted, that you would equip us for good work, that you would fill us with your spirit, help us to be discerning and wise in this day, But most of all, Father, may you get bigger. May you increase. May you increase. And may we decrease. Father, that is our prayer, our hope, in the name of Jesus.